Let's pray again together. Our Father in heaven, you are the author of life. You are the creator of all. We are not the ones who have authored life nor created life. And so we humble ourselves before you this day. We acknowledge your greatness. We acknowledge your goodness. We acknowledge that we are here because you have created and specifically woven us together according to your design, that we're all unique, that we are your handiwork. And therefore, Father, we bow before you and we pray that you might help us by your spirit to understand your mind that we might know your ways, that we might be your people in the day and wage in which we live, in a culture that celebrates or de- uh, demands the right for death, we pray that you might help us to be the people of life. For your glory we pray. Amen. I pulled off my bookshelf the other day, a book that was published in 1978. You're probably thinking, where were you? in 1978. I was in college at the time. And interestingly enough, the book was written only five years after the watershed Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade, in which abortion was legalized on demand. Abortion on demand was legalized. And the book I found, even today, is amazing in in the way in which the authors so accurately set forth words of alarms, words of of warning that were not only accurate, but they've been proven to be, I think, prophetic in some ways. Listen to a quote, if you will, several paragraphs from this book. Try to follow along now. Life is a continuum from conception until natural death. Since life is being destroyed before birth, now this is reaction to what had happened in 1973. Since life is being destroyed before birth, why not tamper with life on the other end of the spectrum? Will a society which has assumed the right to kill infants in the womb because they are unwanted, imperfect, or merely inconvenient? have difficulty in assuming the right to kill other human beings, especially older adults who are judged unwanted, deemed imperfect physically or mentally, or considered a possible social nuisance. The next candidates for arbitrary reclassification as non-persons, this is predicted now in 1978, are the elderly. This will become increasingly so as the proportion of old and weak in relation to the young and strong becomes abnormally large. So they're predicting that there's going to be a huge influx and larger population of older people. And how do they know that? Due to the growing anti-family sentiment, the abortion rate and medicine's contribution to the lengthening of the normal lifespan. Have we not seen that? We have. I'm almost done with the quote. As the demand for affluence, that is to live a comfortable life of having lots of good things around us, as the demand for affluence continues and the economic crunch gets greater, the amount of compassion that the legislature and the courts will have for the old does not seem likely to be significant considering the precedent 
of the non-protection given to unborn and the newborn. The book, Whatever Happened to the Human Race, by Francis Schaeffer and Dr. Everett Koop. After they laid that foundation of concern regarding the other end of the spectrum of life toward the elderly, they went on to explore the phrase that we often hear today, a phrase that's commonly used. It's called death with dignity. The phrase became a motto of a movement to legalize the killing of a person who, quote, had the right to complete relief of an unbearable life. But there's a critical question we need to ask when the phrase uh, death with dignity is being thrown around. Unbearable by whose standards? By whose definition is it unbearable? You see, the authors Schaefer and Coop understood almost 40 years ago the inevitable domino effect that when a society essentially permits and supports the erosion of the sanctity of life. There are going to be other implications of that that continue to permeate the society where that is allowed. And so I want to take my first portion of the sermon this morning. I want to briefly survey some contemporary examples in which we find today of this death with dignity messages that are being announced fairly loudly in our society and culture. Uh, they have... Uh, been sort of uh, recently found their way into uh, many different realms. And then I'd like to take a moment of thinking through the culture of death that distorts the true dignity and value of every human being. And finally, I hope to end on a note in which we contrast those messages that are being announced by our culture to an urgent call for us to embrace the messages that are rooted in a biblical worldview. A worldview in which life is not only celebrated, but it's life that is also protected. So first of all, I want us to think through about, let's beware of the deceptive messages of, that, that devalue life. Deceptive messages that devalue life. Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Job. Job chapter 2. It's page 609 in your pew Bible. Actually, you can look at Job 1 if you like, but I want us to look at one of the earliest messages of death. It's found in the book of Job. The book begins with this story about a very wealthy man. Job is very well off. He is one of the the, uh, top uh, people of his uh, society. He is a person who is very, very well off financially and He is described in verse 1 of chapter 1 in Job as a blameless man, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. So he is rich also with a sense of of uprightness about his life. Along with his material wealth, Job is blessed with good health. He has in that culture a, a wonderful thing that was valued, a very large family of 10 children, And yet, as you continue to read the book, he loses his wealth in rapid succession due to a natural disaster and due to several enemy invasions. All of a sudden, he goes from being a person who is very well off to being a person who has really no assets at all. Then he hears the news that his children, not just some of them, but all of his children, are killed when a 
house that they're all uh, together gathered in collapses when there was a high windstorm. And soon thereafter, as if that wasn't enough, Job then began to suffer. Physical pain that must have been absolutely excruciating. He has boils that have broken out all over his body. He went from enjoying a life of blessing to suffering unending pain and deep sorrow and abject poverty. His response to all this was his humble surrender. Look at verse 21 in chapter 1. It's an amazing response. He says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. But it doesn't stop there. Because along with his suffering, along with his misery, is the fact that his wife shares in that misery and suffering as well. And her perspective is just the opposite. Look at chapter 2. All she could see was loss and misery for her and her husband. She couldn't make sense of it. She could not echo what Job had said. And so her reaction was to angrily dismiss God. To take matters into her own hands. And so she urges her husband to do what? Look at verse 9. She urges him to curse God and die. In other words, she thought that the best option for her husband was death rather than a life of pain, rather than a life of poverty, rather than a life of childlessness. I would suggest to you that based on this passage alone, that the message of, quote-unquote, death with dignity is a very old message indeed. Last summer, perhaps some of you may have seen or heard about the movie, Me Before You. It's based on a novel by a particular gentleman, Jojo Moyes. The movie is about this adventurous, rich, young, handsome young man who early on in the film is injured by a, a motorcycle that actually runs into him. And in so doing, uh, the result of that is that this man is paralyzed from the neck down. And rather than face a lifetime paralyzed and stuck in a wheelchair, he intentionally is plotting and making plans to somehow end his life. As the movie continues on, a woman is brought in. She's paid to be a person who tries to offer him some sort of companionship or help or encouragement or uh, uh, sort of offering him as a general aid. And so she attempts to change his mind by helping to point him out to the fact that he can attend various events. He can do a number of things that are uh, fascinating and uh, interesting in life. Getaways, trying to impress upon him that the life, uh, even a quadriplegic, is still worth living. As the movie goes on, of course, the couple falls in love. Uh, sorry if I'm telling you too much about the movie. If you don't want to listen, you can put your fingers in your ears. But anyway, sadly enough, they do care for one another. And then Spoiler alert, despite the love and support of his parents, who are very supportive of him, 
have all kinds of resources to help whatever he needs to provide him whatever he is in need of in terms of his uh, material needs. He also has this caring, compassionate young woman who really does truly care about him. The young man, unfortunately, continues with his plan. He goes to a country where and travels there where he is. They permit physician-assisted suicide. And you're left with this awful sense of people who care about someone and the other person who could never accept a life that was difficult, and we know it is difficult. There's no question about it. But he finds his escape in that way. Another recent message that some of you may have heard about in social media happened back in 2014. A 29-year-old woman named Brittany Maynard was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. She chose to move her family to Oregon, the state of Oregon, to gain access to a legal physician-assisted suicide. She wanted access to prescription drugs for the purpose of taking control of the timing of her death. And through social media, she made it very clear that she chose to forego any kind of compassionate care or palliative care, which tries to address the levels of your pain, physical pain and other things. Hospice she rejected, other forms of emotional support. She chose death instead and very well made it known through social media. Now let's back up and just say, first of all, our hearts go out to each of these people, whether it's a fictional de de depiction of people who actually go through that reality or people who face that reality of a terminal illness, people who are paralyzed, people who face pain-filled prognosis. Our hearts do go out to them, and we must not minimize the level of their suffering. We must not minimize the, the difficulty of what they're dealing with. And yet, as we hear about these messages, I find it interesting to hear of pe from people who similarly share their experience, who understand more than I do what they're going through and how they react to some of these troubling messages that are now being widely spread about in our culture, in which they have an expanding acceptance of this culture of death. One of those people that react is Johnny Erickson Tata. She is truly one of my heroes. She has spent over 50 years as a quadriplegic in a wheelchair. She offered this reaction to two of these examples, both of whom uh, she's familiar with and was as, uh, commenting on. She says, what concerns me is this continuing culture of death is promoting the premise that one is better off dead than disabled. It doesn't matter what age you are, whether you are unborn, whether you are an infant, or whether you are, an, are elderly or quadriplegic, living in a wheelchair for 50 years. This is a message, she says, I think that is straight from the pit of hell. Unquote. And yet the message continues to spread. As a culture of death in our society, there are more and more people advocating for greater access to physician-assisted suicide. There are four states now, including recently the state of California, along with Oregon, Vermont, Montana, that have passed laws allowing these kinds of things. Even more alarming, though, that's just states in our nation, but even more alarming is the number of evangelical Christians 
who see nothing wrong with this trend, who have supported it and are supported. I have recently read a statistic of a survey done that says that four out of ten, almost four out of ten, evangelicals polled agreed that when a person is facing a painful terminal disease, it is morally acceptable to ask for a physician, physician's aid in taking his or her own life. Four out of ten Christians are buying into that particular message and ministry of death. Well, that leads me now to my second point. I don't want to, I mean, we could just keep going on and on about examples of that. And again, these are real life situations. I want us to look secondly at what it means to embrace truth-filled messages that celebrate or honor life. Now, the biblical view of life is that human beings have been set apart by God, that they are people who are not in the same category as other forms of life, that humans are uniquely bearers of the image of God. If you look at Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, right at the beginning of all of the story of God's redemptive plan in the world, His actions in the world, it says in Genesis 1, 26, God said, Let us make man, meaning mankind, in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish birds cattle and every creeping thing and god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them because of those significant comments on the value and the dignity of human beings the psalmist, in reflecting upon other people of human, uh, human life, he says, God has crowned every human being with glory and honor, Psalm 8. And since everyone bears the image of their maker, each person has inherent dignity, inherent value, no matter what their age, no matter what their IQ, no matter what their skin color, their abilities, or their talents or lack of talents or their age, or even their economic status. Life is a gift from God. And I really like the comments I came across of an 11-year-old girl named Ella, F-R-E-C-H. I guess her name is Freck is the name. She is a world wheelchair champion. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but she competes in her wheelchair. And she connected the dots of logic, understanding the biblical view of man as all of us are image bearers of God. She said this, if our value comes from God, then nobody, nobody has the right to say someone who walks is worth more than somebody who doesn't. She gets it. You see, a biblical worldview affirms that each human life is of infinite worth. And rather than trying to put ourselves in God's place, rather than trying to determine whose life is bearable and whose life is unbearable, even if we do it with good intentions, trying to save people from suffering, we are called ultimately to yield to our Creator. We're called to yield to God, say, God, that's your call to make. That's your call alone. 
So I want to think through now some practical implications about how we approach those who face, for example, terminal illnesses or people who deal with the daily reality of chronic pain, debilitating, declining physical abilities. And I would like to suggest of the three suggestions we're going to make here. Number one, we need to put an end to the trend in our culture of somehow exchanging compassionate, holistic care and sort of giving that away and replacing it with artificially ending life early. People who are facing the ravages of cancer or some other disease that results in shortening their lifespan need obviously more than just mere compassion. They don't just need a pat on the back. They don't just need someone to say, oh, I'm so sorry for you. We want to definitely be compassionate in how we respond to them, but they need more than that, obviously. And we who affirm the value of human beings must insist that the true, genuine, that they, that they receive a true, genuine death with dignity. And by that we mean people with terminal illnesses and difficult disabilities must have provided to them caring doctors who will work hand-in-hand with competent caregivers, along with supportive family and friends. And that when we have things like palliative care that deals with issues of pain, hospice care, is a, and other forms of commendable responses to people who are suffering, these kind of practical resources are the kinds of appropriate uh, responses that need to be available to people who are terminally ill and their families. And the field, of course, is to alleviate suffering as much as they can, to provide relief from the stress, the symptoms of serious diseases, and to provide support for emotional, social, and spiritual needs of those who are dying and their families. One of the ways we affirm the dignity of those who are on one of their last laps of their race in life is to have nurses or people who are medical aides, people who are uh, health givers, who are honoring God by providing the kind of appropriate respect for their patients with competent, well-executed care. And let me just say again, I celebrate all of those who are in medical care today and those who offer their assistance. And may I say to you, there are some wonderfully God-honoring people who serve in the most humble of positions in taking care of patients who are very sick. We must never minimize the value of what they do. They are people who obviously are true heroes if they do it commendably and well and with, an, with a desire to honor God and those that they're called to serve. Perhaps some of the critical needs of those who have these kind of special needs are the help with their anger issues. A person sitting in a wheelchair can become extremely frustrated at their lack of ability to do what they perhaps used to be able to do. Depression issues must be addressed or pain management techniques. These are all ways in which they must not just merely be concerned only with someone's physical needs alone. But we take a holistic approach. Secondly, I would suggest that another compassionate response is to offer the ministry of presence. And I'm not talking about boxes with bows on top. I'm talking about the ministry of people who stand alongside of and who are with people in their difficulties and struggles and pain. A person's value is affirmed whenever we are able to choose to spend time with that person. I've been so blessed over the years to have a number of occasions where I've had the blessing of being able to see and witness firsthand 
those opportunities where a compassionate, caring ministry of, of family members and some friends or fellow church members have come alongside of a loved one or a brother or sister in Christ in a hospice situation or in a hospital, and you hear them singing hymns. It's a beautiful thing. You hear them reading Scripture aloud. You, you see them expressing in practical ways their love and support for this person who is so weak and having such difficulties. They bring spiritual encouragement to them. I would imagine that those who are in terminal Ill disease, it could be a rather scary, lonely place. And so when we are there with them to point them to Christ, when we are there with them to remind them of the glories of the gospel, the promises that we have in Christ, to, to celebrate with them the wonder that the righteous one, the one who did not ever deserve to suffer pain, the one who did not ever deserve to die. That one was the one who died willingly and laid his life down in our place on that cross. That is the one who is now raised from the dead and who is victorious over death. And not only does he provide us assurance of sins forgiven through his death on their behalf, but he offers a steadfast hope that concludes the complete reversal someday of the curse of sin. See, another way that we need to combat the culture of death is to be present with those who are still alive and to speak to them the words of life. And lastly, let me just say to you, and again, we could go on and on here, but I'm just trying to boil them down, and that is to say, Another response we can offer in place of the messages that come from the culture of death is to be armed with and provide to people around us a robust theology of suffering. You say, what are you talking about? We want to be able to know about suffering, talk about suffering? Yes. Johnny Erickson Todd, I think, is so right on when she says, I feel like so many Christians want to erase suffering from their dictionaries. We don't like suffering and we don't want to deal with it. And we don't know how to deal with it. We tend to sort of come alongside of a person who's suffering and we want to, first of all, in doing so, we want to come and we want to be, we want to be compassionate and we want to just listen to them. We don't want to come with all the answers. We don't want to come assuming that we know everything. We want to come and listen. We want to come and reflect, let them reflect and give an ear to them as they talk about their struggles and what they're really facing in their hardships. And then when the time is right, we need to be biblically informed. Being gentle, yes, sensitive. But we want to point them to God. Point them to the God who has entered into our suffering world and the God who is not immune from suffering himself. In the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ, God dwelt among us. And God experienced deep, physical, and emotional distress. Imagine that. See, God is not far off and aloof from you or from me or whoever you're trying to minister to who is suffering. You read through the Gospels, you hear Jesus saying, My soul has become troubled. Jesus willingly underwent unspeakable physical torture as he was nailed to a Roman cross. 
He did not take dramatic steps to avoid the sufferings of the cross, but he waited until the Father was pleased in that Jesus accomplished all that the Father assigned for him, and then Jesus gave up his spirit and said, okay, I'm now finished with this suffering. 1 Peter 2.21, you might want to make note of that verse. It reminds us, it says these words, Jesus suffered for us. Jesus suffered for us. May I suggest to you that the purpose of Jesus' suffering was not to prevent us from all suffering in the here and now. Sometimes some people teach that, unfortunately, the health and wealth gospel people. They assume that somehow we should be shielded because if we have enough faith, somehow God will shield us from all pain and discomfort. No, it's not. It's not going to happen. But Jesus redeemed pain to serve His sovereign, gracious, wise purposes. He uses pain. Do you believe that? God uses pain to accomplish His purposes. For example, He can use pain to draw us to Himself. I don't have time to read you the entire thing. I read the, shared this the other day with the praise and prayer time at 9.30 a couple of Sundays ago, and I read to you a devotional from Johnny Erickson Tata. I'm sorry I keep mentioning her name, but this woman speaks these issues far better than I can. And she writes this on commenting on the verse, for me to live as Christ to die as gain. That's the verse, Philippians 1. She says, I would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus than on my feet without him. It's still true. The joy, the hope, the peace I experience. Not in spite of, but because of my disability, is so much more fulfilling and satisfying than having feet that walk and run and hands that hold, touch, and feel. She says, I'd rather be in the storm with Christ than in the calm waters alone. What's she saying? She's saying that God has used the suffering and the daily challenges and misery and difficulties of being in a wheelchair that have drawn her closer to Christ. God also uses pain to what? Bring other people to Himself. God uses pain also to build character traits that lead to godliness, that lead to Christ-likeness. He uses pain to bring glory to Himself so that we learn over time to bear up under the burden of our sufferings and to rejoice in the Lord, knowing that what? The sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glories to be revealed. I've listed for you in your notes there a long list of different ways in which God has different things that He may be accomplishing through pain and suffering. I commend them to your careful thought and study some other time to look up those verses and think and ponder those and to realize there's a lot going on here that I don't really fully understand, but there are reasons to trust God in the midst of it all. And by the way, I got those from a biblical counseling training conference similar to the one that's, being, uh, that's going to happen here on the island in Westbury. I'll have a little plug here for that in uh, May and June. Uh, sorry, April, May, and June, first weekend. Now, as I conclude, let me just say this. Job, who was suffering, 
who was hearing a message that was saying dignity of death, a culture of death, he did not succumb to that message. Even though the pain was excruciating, Job says, as he pondered more what God was doing and realized that he doesn't know a lot about what God was doing, but he says, first, Job 23.10, you might want to write that one down, 23.10 of Job, God knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. And Job also said in chapter 2, verse 10, after his wife said those words to him about curse God and die, he said, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all these things Job did not sin with his lips. Folks, if we live long enough, you're going to suffer. And the suffering doesn't get easier. It becomes more difficult. What is your view of suffering? What is your view of your life as a person who suffers? Or of other people who suffer? Are we people who have a message of life for them? Or are we people who, in our compassion, have embraced the messages of death? Let's be those who point them to the light of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to pray now for all of us who are here today and those who are hearing this as a way of uh, recording. Perhaps there are those, Lord, who are unable to be with us today because they are in pain and suffering. Lord, wherever we are on the continuum of suffering, I pray that you would help us to not buy into the message of death the message that begins to devalue us and our worth in your eyes. We thank you, Lord, that the, it's very clear in your word that every person is a person of value and dignity in your eyes. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to convey that dignity, to convey that respect to other people in the midst of their sufferings. We pray that you would teach us, Lord, to be a people who are effective in the ministry of presence, a people who are uh, seeking to have holistic kind of care offered to people who really are hurting and who need care. Help us, Lord, not to be trivial in our responses. Help us not to be trite in offering just one verse to somebody. Help us, Lord, to be those who come and who come alongside and who listen, who have compassion, who express it in appropriate ways. And Lord, when the person is talking about their struggle, help us, Lord, to be armed with truth. Help us, Lord, to build a foundation of truth to help all of us deal with the fact that we suffer in this world and to trust that you are a God who can use suffering to accomplish your purposes for our good and for your glory. Thank you for a Savior who suffered for us. We pray in his name, in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.